Please sit. <clears throat> I may be giving my age away slightly to say that I grew up when libraries were places of quiet. There were no computers, there were no story times. It was a place where you went and read more or less in silence. And therefore, I can remember distinctly the time when I broke the silence. I was a young student. I was fascinated by patristics, by the study of the church fathers. And one day, I was having to write an essay on Augustine, and I was reading his confessions. Augustine, if you know little about him, is a fascinating person, a brilliant scholar, At the age of 18, he went to the big city, Carthage. And there, he says, he was thrown into the cauldron of sin. It seems he didn't need much encouragement. Age 18, he took a common-law wife with whom he lived for the next 15 years and had a son. Lust was something that Augustine struggled with. But as he came nearer and nearer to an acceptance of the Christian faith, he realized something would have to be done about this. And it's the sentence he wrote that made me laugh out loud. Remember, I was 21. He wrote this. O Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. (laughs) How human, how lovely, But you see, Augustine was on to something which I think many modern Christians have actually forgotten. You cannot accept the Lordship of Jesus Christ and be the same man or the same woman that you were before. You cannot accept the Lordship of Christ and be the same man or the same woman that you were before. This, of course, was forgotten by the woman. I'm sorry it's a woman, but this is how the story goes. Who nagged and scolded and harried her husband from morning until night. And then came the great day. As the Americans would put it, she got religion. She was born again. But she nagged and she scolded and she harried her husband from morning until night, until in exasperation he said, I don't mind that you have been born again. I just wish you hadn't been born again as yourself. That's the problem. That's the problem. When we accept Jesus Christ, our lives need to change. Augustine knew that. Augustine knew he could not be baptized and remain the man he had been previously. Augustine knew this because of the baptism service. And I think it's the baptism service that the writer to the Ephesians is alluding to. He talks about putting off and putting on. Let me explain about the baptism service in the early church. Baptism 
took place after a period of instruction. And the candidates for baptism, usually at Easter Day, were taken out before dawn, while it was still dark, usually to a riverbank. And they were made to face west. And then, as the sun rose behind them in the east, they turned round. And this was a symbol. They were turning from darkness to light. And then they repeated their baptism creed. In churches, it used to be the case when the creed was recited that everybody faced east. And that's why it comes from the early church. So they turned from darkness to light, they recited the baptism creed, and then they were plunged into the water. They were immersed under the water, sharing the death of Christ, out of the water, sharing his resurrection. Before going into water, they had taken off their old outer garments. They had left their old life behind. And when they came out of the water, those garments were gone, and they were clothed in white robes. They were christened. They had put on Christ. Put off the old life. Put on the new. This was the sign that baptism represented. They knew you could not accept the lordship of Jesus Christ and live your old life. But all too often, I hear preached today a half gospel. What is preached is true, but it is incomplete. There's an American writer, a man called Dallas Willard. He writes about the gospel of sin management. And what this means is quite simple. It is preached that Jesus deals with your past. He manages your sin. He sets you free. Now, do not misunderstand me. This is absolutely and gloriously true. But if it is left there, it becomes false. We are set free in order to live new lives. Our sin is forgiven so that we can become, by the power of God's Spirit, new men and new women. But often Christ is preached today as an addition. You can go on living your old life in exactly the same way as you did before, but you can add on to it Jesus Christ. Can I say to you, if Jesus Christ comes truly into your life, your priorities and your life will be turned upside down and utterly reordered. You cannot enter into a new and living relationship with Jesus and remain the same. Put off, put on. I was always taught when I sat in the pews and listened to somebody preached, when they said things like I'm saying now, to say to yourself mentally, why be H? 
Yes, but how? It's very easy to say we should live new lives. Yes, but how? Three things for you this morning. And the first is this. Do you notice that the writer to the Ephesians gives a long list of commands? Now, if you begin there, it's incredibly unhelpful. It just lays a fresh burden on your back. It gives the impression that to be a Christian, you have to do this and this and this and this. And it becomes a burden. Let me tell you a sentence. In the Christian life, the indicative always precedes the imperative. In the Christian life, the indicative always precedes the imperative. In other words, God acts indicative. God acts. And then, as a result of what he has done, he commands. Or put it another way, the Christian life is not a burden. It is a response to what God has already done for us. Think back to the Old Testament. We have what we call the Ten Commandments. And we get the idea that you can be, inverted commas, a good person if you obey the Ten Commandments. But we forget how they begin. They don't begin with an imperative. They begin with an indicative. I am the Lord your God. Who did what? who brought you out of Egypt, the land of slavery. Because I have done this, because I have called you my own, therefore, what follows is the way you should respond to my gracious action. In the Christian life, the indicative always precedes the imperative. Never, ever think of the Christian life as a series of isolated commands. We live in response to what God in Christ has done for us. And that's what Paul says. I'll just read two verses. Beginning of chapter 5. Be imitators of God, therefore, as beloved children, and live a life of love. That's a command. Why? just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. When you read, notice that the commands as to how we are to live always follow an imperative. We live in response to what God has done for us. That's the first yes but how. In the Christian life, The indicative always precedes the imperative. And the second thing, did you notice in our reading how the writer says we were sealed with the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption? And he has a particular picture in mind. In ancient life, the amphora, the Greek jars that contain wine or grain, were sealed at the spout, and they were sealed with a signet ring, a mark of 
ownership. And so what the writer to the Ephesians is saying is this. If you are a Christian, if you have put on Christ, you are no longer your own. You are owned by someone else. And this someone else is Jesus Christ, who loves you beyond your wildest dreams. He loves you at the very depth of your being. This is the second yes but how. In the ancient baptism service, and still today in the Orthodox churches, at baptism there is a chrism, a signing with oil of the head, the lips and the heart, totally given to the ownership of Christ. That's the second yes but how. We are sealed with God's Holy Spirit as a sign that no longer do we live our life according to our own desires and pleasures, but reordered, accepting the lordship of the one who loves us at the very depth of our being. We are sealed, however, with the Holy Spirit. Now, I've been a vicar for almost 40 years, and I know as soon as you mention the Holy Spirit, people's eyes glaze over. Somebody once described the Holy Spirit to me as a grey, oblong blank. Very honest. That was that person's experience. The Holy Spirit somehow just seemed a grey, oblong blank. What's the Holy Spirit to you? I always take people to two words from John 14. Jesus talks to his disciples the day before his crucifixion. They are grief-stricken because he said he's going to go away. And he says, it is good for you that I go away, but I will send another comforter. That's what we are sealed with, another comforter. Now, the fascinating thing is, as you know, is written in Greek. Now, Greek is a very precise language. And in Greek, unlike English, there are two words for another. Let me give you an example. Let's say you go into shop and you ask for a new fountain pen. Now, what you could mean is another exactly the same as the one you currently have. It writes beautifully. It just nestles in the crook of your hand perfectly. You want another exactly the same as this. But you could go into a shop and say, I want another pen. And what you might mean now is you want another completely different pen. This blots and blotches and makes a mess of your hand and the writing. You want another completely different than this one. When Jesus promised another comforter, what did he mean? He meant he would send another exactly the same as himself. Everything that Jesus had been to his disciples, he promises that his Holy Spirit will be to us. All those who accept the Lordship of Jesus Christ have the Holy Spirit there with us, 
to be to us exactly the same as Jesus had been to his disciples. And that was why it was good that Jesus went away. For Jesus could only be with one group of men and women in one particular place at one particular time. But the wonderful thing is God's Holy Spirit can be with all Christians in all places at all times and be to them exactly what Jesus had been to his followers. But what had he been? Another comforter. Interesting thing is, I wonder whether you've ever seen the Bayer Tapestry. You know, the Bayer Tapestry celebrate the victory of William of Normandy over Harold, King of England. And there is one of the tapestry, part of the tapestry, that shows Bishop Odo comforting a soldier. Bishop Odo comforting a soldier. I wonder what picture that brings to your mind. What picture it brings to your mind is almost certainly wrong. For this was the days when bishops didn't carry pastoral staffs, they wore chain mail and carried swords. They were fighters. And if you look at the picture in the Bayer Tapestry where Bishop Odo comforts a soldier, you will see the bishop taking his sword and with the flat of the sword hitting the soldier across his backside encourage him forward. That is how Bishop Odo comforted the soldier. And that's what the Latin means. It means to put strength into. To put strength into. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is for us everything that Jesus was to his disciples, but particularly he puts strength into us to enable us to respond to the love of God and live lives that are worthy of him. Finish with a quote, if I may. French Roman Catholic, end of the 19th century, a man called Charles Pegay, said this, the only real tragedy in life is not to be a saint. The only real tragedy in life is not to be a saint. Let's not have half a gospel. Let's not just celebrate the fact that Jesus died for our sins, wonderful as that is. Let's go on from there and let's add to it the complementary truth. Jesus calls us to holiness. And holiness just means fullness of life. He calls us to be the man and the woman that he always pictured, that he always envisaged, a man or a woman fully alive. Let's follow the call to holiness. Let's not just be content with living unchanged lives. If we have taken the name of Jesus on our lips, let us thank God for the cross, but let us respond to the empowering of the Holy Spirit. The only real life is not to be a saint. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the new life that it makes possible. Lord, if our response in the past has been feeble and half-hearted, we ask your forgiveness. May we know again the empowering of your Holy Spirit and may we respond more fully to the call to holiness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So like Christians through the ages, we now respond to God's words with the words of the creed. We stand. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, upon being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. So we come to our intercessions. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as each one is gathered here, we know that you are with us. Give us the courage to examine our lives and help us to reorder them, to put off the old, to put on the new. May your Holy Spirit shed light on areas that you want to deal with. And comfort us, put strength in us to change, to be more like you. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. 
Heavenly Father, it's a, a time of holidays, a, a time when we can rest. Um, may it be a time when we have extra time to reflect and spend with you.